In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus has been teaching his followers, his disciples, how to be his followers. How to be, if you remember right back to the start, fishers of men. That is, those who go out as part of Jesus' work in this world, both for salvation as they preach the gospel and for judgment as the message of the kingdom of heaven arrives. We've heard how the disciples of Jesus are supposed to be those who have a righteousness that exceeds even the Pharisees, even the best of the best. Jesus' disciples were to be salt and light in a city on a hill, distinctive, marked out, clearly, obviously, unambiguously different. Why? Well, they live these lives such that everyone else would see and give glory to God as people are transformed to be like him. A righteousness that is supposed to be sincere. We, as we practice it in secret, it shows the sincerity. Now, last week, we began to talk about the white ants, about a couple of areas of life that can undermine that faith. In fact, they can undermine it from within, leaving nothing but an empty husk. In our last week, Joe pointed out for us two of them, and today we're going to look at a third. Last week, there was money and worry, which, of course, is fairly obvious as to how they undermine our faith. If faith is trusting God, then if you trust money, you're not trusting God. And likewise, if faith is trusting God, then worry and anxiety comes from not trusting God. Now, look, if you missed the cutting room floor last week, which is the live uh, interactive segment that we do on Sunday nights, well worth going and having a, a watch. It's on our YouTube channel. I'll put a link in the comments. As Joe shared some of the things that he left uh, out of the sermon, and there was a couple of really helpful things in there that would be worth going and looking up. Uh, one of them was, what are the ways to store up treasure in heaven? We, we heard a lot of what we're not, not supposed to do, uh, and Joe spent some time helping us understand what we are supposed to do. And he also talked about mental health and what place does clinical anxiety and depression and all these sorts of things have when it comes to this command, not to worry, but to trust God. Can I commend that to you? Today, we're going to consider one more white ant, before, and then we're going to see an amazing promise, and then a summary. There you go, a white ant, a promise, and a summary. It's a little bit like the line of the witch in the wardrobe. One more white ant, one more uh, part of life that has the potential to undermine our faith, our life of righteousness, trusting in God. And this particular white ant is a phrase that you might well have had quoted at you. There are many Bible phrases that have come into common usage. Often people don't even realize that, uh, well, that they've come from the Bible. You might be able to think of some. Uh, I've got a stack, but it's always a fun exercise to try and see if we can come up with some more. Uh, At the 11th hour, that's from the Bible. Uh, The blind leading the blind. At your wit's end, saved by the skin of your teeth. All of these are out of the Bible. Now, if you can think of some more, then by all means, why don't you put them in the comments now and, uh, and help each other to think some more. But there are three more that are all from today's passage. Do unto others, as uh, one of the slightly older versions of the Bible said, pearls before swine, and perhaps the most commonly spoken of all, judge not. Judge not. 
And that's where Jesus begins. Do not judge, he says in Matthew chapter 7 and verse 1. Do not judge so that you won't be judged. I feel like this is one of the most common Bible verses that is quoted at Christians. Well, who are you? Who are you to judge me? Who do you think you are? The Bible says don't judge. In fact, they treat us like hypocrites, right? You Christians are such a judgmental lot. I thought you were supposed to not judge. Do not judge, we are told. Now, the problem is, like so many of these phrases that have come into common usage, they are taken completely out of context. That is, the words, the sentences, the phrases, the teachings around the particular verse are crucial to understanding the verse. You might remember Joe's little phrase from a few weeks back. See if I can get it right. A verse without a context is a pretext for a proof text. There you go. That is, if you take the verse out of its surrounding teaching, you can make the Bible say anything. There's a verse that says, don't do that. There you go. So you could say the Bible says don't do that and you can use it of whatever you want. The context matters. Is Jesus truly saying that we are never to judge? That we are never to display any discernment? I mean, that is what judgment is after all, deciding right and wrong, evaluating something on its merits. Are we truly to be so naive? I think it's a bit ludicrous to suggest that really. There are so many contexts in life in which it is absolutely right to discern, to judge, to evaluate right from wrong. Let me give you one example at the extreme end to illustrate the point. Imagine if you would, a church in which one of the the elders, perhaps even the ministry staff team, commits sexual immorality. Perhaps they... uh, run off with one of the youth group leaders and decide that, in fact, they don't want to be married to their spouse anymore. They want to go and shack up with this particular individual. Are we supposed to not judge? Allow that particular person to remain in leadership? Allow that youth group leader to continue to lead the youth? Well, of course not. The Bible is very clear on that. You see... There are some things that are clearly we have to judge. Well, is Jesus saying don't judge? No, he's not saying don't judge at all. You must never discern anything. Rather, what he's saying is that there is a way of judging wrongly. The the white ant, if you like, that which will destroy our faith, is if we judge in a way that is unhelpful to others and unhelpful to them, to ourselves. Do not judge so that you won't be judged. That is, there is a type of judgment that will bring condemnation on us. Jesus continues, for you will be judged with the same measure with which you judge others. You will be measured by the same measure you use. That is, judge in such a way that you would be prepared to receive that judgment the measure that you wish was applied to you, the standard, if you like. How is it that you would like to be judged? Well, fairly, mercifully, as the gospel does, kindly, honestly, truly. There are two ways of judging wrongly. 
that are illustrated for us in this passage. Really, uh, with some kind of humorous pictures. I, I, I suspect that Jesus had a bit of fun with these as he was teaching them. The first one, a very familiar picture, is there for us in verse, where are we? Uh, verse 3. Why do you look at the splinter in your brother's eye, but don't notice the beam of wood in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take the splinter out of your eye, and look, there's a beam of wood in your own eye first? Hypocrite, first take the beam of wood out of your eye, and then you will see clearly to take the splinter out of your brother's eye. I found this cartoon on the internet. Uh, it just captures it so perfectly, the, 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 the absurdity of the picture. To be pointing out a speck in someone's eye, to see that they are essentially perfect. I mean, for the little splinter, it's really not going to do too much. While at the same time, we have a beam and perhaps someone else has got an entire tree growing out of theirs. What's the wrong way to judge? Well, it's to be a hypocrite. To be somebody whose life is so full of sin and yet to go around pointing out the nitpicky little details that we spot in other people. It made me think of last week. If you come back to chapter 6 and verse 22, as Jesus, uh, as Joe, sorry, told us to go to the eye doctor, right? The eye, chapter 6, verse 22, the eye is the lamp of the body. If your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. So if the light within you is darkness, how deep is that darkness? I don't think it's a surprise that Jesus picks on the eye as he comes to talk about judging hypocritically. The plank in the eye would produce nothing but darkness. Here is an individual whose whole life is filled with the very opposite of what it ought to be. And out of that darkness, you think you can help others? But of course, having removed the beam, we are to take the splinter out. We are to judge if properly. Yeah, there's a couple of dangers when we talk about judging and being judgmental. I mean, that's, that's kind of the cardinal sin of our day, isn't it? You're allowed to do whatever you want as long as you don't judge others, heaven forbid. And so it's possible that even as Christians, we are so afraid that we never take the splinter out of our brother's eye, that we never help our sister to say, I've noticed this sin, can I help you? But of course, perhaps more commonly, we are just too blind to see our own beams, are we? The, the machine gun judging that will cut down any and everybody else for the, 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 most, the smallest flaw while our lives are full of sin. I wonder for a moment, this is worth reflecting on, how do you react when somebody else points out your sin? Now, for most of us, it's not pleasant. We don't like it. We perhaps react defensively. In fact, quite often, we'll start pointing out the sin in their lives. Now, I wonder if we need to be prepared to accept the help of our brothers and sisters to take the splinters out of our eyes. When it does come, why not listen, accept, think about it, reflect on it, pray about it? We don't need to lash out and fight back. Well, the first way of judging wrongly is to be a hypocrite. The second is to be a fool. And again, another very famous picture, which I think is hilarious, 
Verse 6, don't give what is holy to dogs or toss your pearls before pigs. They will trample them under your feet, turn and tear you to pieces. I found this picture. There you go. I like, I like this one of a, a hog with the pearls. Quality. It almost looks like a real photo. I wonder if they really did dress up. Anyway, I don't know how they do these sorts of things. See, Christians can often be very naive. We can get taken for a ride. We, we don't even stop to think about the effect of these other people who really aren't concerned for hearing the gospel, who don't care and just want to load up ammo to come back at us, who just want to find something that will damage us. I've known a couple of individuals who uh, would come to church week after week. They, they started visiting at one point and just kept coming, this, this one particular guy I'm thinking of at the moment. And every week he'd have a different question. And the sorts of questions that you really want to answer, asking questions about God and about morality, about sexuality, about Jesus, about the Gospels, asking if they were truly seeking the sorts of questions that I love to answer. But it became very clear that week after week after week, they weren't interested at all in the answers. They didn't care. They'd ask the question, and even if I'd just be halfway through it, they'd ask the next one. Simply trying to find a way to catch me out. Trying to find something that they could grab hold of and say, Ha, see, look, look. Utterly uninterested. Trying to find either validation for their own viewpoint or something that would damage me. We need to recognize that there are people in the world who all they want is to hurt us. As Christians, as followers of Jesus in particular, all they want to do, because they hate our master, is to harm us. I read just this week of a young man uh, in another part of the world who became a Christian, converted from Hinduism, and his family beat him to death. Now, it's very easy for us to think that those sorts of people, somebody who would be that aggressive towards a Christian, that they live elsewhere, that those aren't our neighbours, that those aren't the people we know of. When really it's simply because our society restrains that we don't suffer more. You see, as we judge, we must judge with true discernment to spot those who, like the dogs, like the pigs here, have no concern but to harm, who don't care. And I feel like at some point we've got to be prepared to say, well, I'm just throwing away my goods right now. All I'm doing is giving you ammunition. You are not interested. Goodbye. And we commend them to our Heavenly Father that He might bring them home. You see, both of these are damaging to our faith. Both of these ways of judging wrongly. The hypocrite, of course, because their life is full of sin. And the fool, the naive Christian, because they'll be disheartened and discouraged, if not outright destroyed. But if you're feeling a little bit discouraged right now, and you're feeling like, oh man, all this righteousness and, and the life I'm supposed to live, it's so hard. Well, 
Come and look with me at the amazing promise that God makes in these verses. Come down to verse 7. Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened. For everyone who asks receives. And the one who seeks finds. And the one who knocks, the door will be opened. Who among you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a snake? If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? I mean, again with the pictures, if the child comes and asks the father, can I, have some, can I have some toast? Yeah, here you go, here's a bread. I mean, a stone, sorry. Um, you go and, go and chew on that, right? Or, or can I have some, can I have some fish and chips, please? Yeah, right, here's a snake. Catch that, right? Uh, now I, I can imagine some people who would quite enjoy that. My son would very happily be given a rock, uh, perhaps not to eat. Um, but what an amazing promise. Ask and it will be given. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened. See, we might be a little bit concerned for those people that we judge as not being, as being the pigs and the dogs here who are just concerned for damaging us. And we might think, well, hang on, I have to preach the gospel to them. It's okay. If they are genuinely seeking, they will find too. Right? Don't worry about them. If they honestly want to find Jesus, they will find him. But it's also true for us. What an amazing promise that God will give. Now, some have taken this to mean that God is a bit like a genie in a bottle. That as long as you ask rightly, as long as you ask just in the right way, God will give you anything that you ask for. In fact, that God will give you everything that you ask for. For some reason, inevitably, this seems to end up in asking for wealth and health prosperity, success, love. It's very strange and very self-centered, the things that people end up asking for. As if God were a genie in the bottle. And it ends up with some really deep problems because inevitably people will ask for things that are a bit ludicrous and they don't get it. And well, how come I didn't get it? And often the answer is because you didn't have enough faith and all of a sudden Christians are weighed down. God is not some magical creature that he will give you every and anything so long as you twist his arm just right. You've heard the, uh, the story about the genie in the bottle, right? The, uh, the old man who was up in his attic one day and found a lamp and he thought, oh, I could probably sell this for a bit of money and so he's trying to you know, rub it, clean it up a bit and poof, genie appears, I'll give you three wishes, he says, whatever you want. And the old man says, well, I'd, I'd really love to be rich. And so, bang, all of a sudden, there he is, a mansion, the billion dollars in the bank. The old man says, well, my my body's getting a bit old. I'd I'd love to have my youth back again. And bang, there he is, all young and strong. The hips don't hurt anymore and the eyes can see. He's very excited. He thinks, oh, man, what am I going to use my third wish on? He thinks, you know what? I, I really struggled with women all my life. I'd love to be able to understand women. And the genie goes, oh, mate, that's, that's pushing it a little bit. I, I, is there anything else? Can I do something else for you? And the guy thinks for a while. No, I got it wrong. Damn. You've heard the one about the, uh, the genie. 
You've heard the one about the, uh, the old man who finds the, the genie lamp. He's up in his attic one day and he finds this old lamp. He thinks, oh, maybe I'll sell it, get some cash. And he's rubbing it to clean it up. And poof, the genie appears. I'll give you three wishes. He says, anything you want. And the old man's, oh, I'm a bit excited. He says, well, I'd, uh, I'd love to be rich. And so, poof, there you go. All of a sudden, the mansion, the billions of dollars, the fast cars all appear. He's very excited now. He thinks, oh, I'm getting old. My body aches. Can I have my youth back again? And bam, there he is looking like an Adonis, just muscles and everything. And it's just, oh, he's feeling good and he's thinking hard to himself. He's like, what 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 would I ask for next? You know what? I've always really wanted to be able to drive to New Zealand and then go up and down New Zealand in just a super fast sports car. So could you please make me a highway from here to New Zealand? And the genie goes, oh, mate, that's, I mean, the amount of materials, the engineering required to keep it above the sea, I, I think we're pushing it a bit. That, that's, that's really quite impossible. Um, is there anything else? And the old man thinks for himself for a while and he goes, well, actually, there is one other thing. I, uh, all my life, I've, I've really not had much luck with, with, with the ladies. Um, I wonder if you could, if you could uh, make it so that I can understand women. And the genie looks at him and he says, so the highway, was it two lanes or four? <laughs> That's a silly story, isn't it? And yet, some people seem to think God is like that. As long as I ask him right and for the right thing, he will deliver it to me, which is nonsense. You see, what has Jesus been doing? Jesus has been training fishers of men. He's been training disciples. He's been training those who will live for God's kingdom, filling them with the righteousness that comes from the Spirit, teaching them to yearn for the kingdom of God and to proclaim the message that the kingdom of heaven is at hand. What is it that God's disciples are going to want? What are they going to ask for? Well, they're going to ask for God's glory. They're going to ask for God's kingdom to come. In their own lives, they're going to ask, if you remember the last few weeks, for hearts that don't hate or lust, for lips that speak truth, for love, for enemies, that they might give and pray and fast sincerely, that they might have treasure in heaven and deep trust in the Father who provides, a heartfelt desire to serve God, to live without the anxiety that comes from the things of this world and to trust ourselves to God. That's what the disciple of Jesus will ask for and that absolutely God will give. When we ask for God's things, not ours. Can I have a new camel please, Jesus? That's not what they're going to ask for. Ask for the Father loves to give good things. And note, that includes provision. You ask for food, he's not going to give you something else. He will provide. You can think back to the Lord's Prayer again. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will. Oh, provide for us what we need, our bread. Provide the forgiveness that we earn. Remove temptation from us so that we might live to your glory. Now that is a prayer that God delights to answer, that you might come to him as your loving father for whose glory you are concerned and ask of him that you might live like this. 
that you might come to him with confidence. You see, if last week's exercise was to go and see the birds and smell the roses, this week's exercise is to go and ask your father to plead with him that he might make you the sort of person who gives glory and brings glory to him. And just in case it's all been too much and you're struggling to remember all the things we're supposed to be and how we're supposed to do it, Jesus concludes this little section of the Sermon on the Mount with a summary. Verse 12, Therefore, and I think that therefore brings the whole last couple of chapters together, Whatever you want others to do for you, do also the same for them. For this is the law and the prophets. Here's the summary. Here's what you need to remember. Now, this isn't comprehensive, okay? It's not that you can just take that one verse and ignore the rest of the Bible. You need the rest of the Bible. But at the very least, here is one easy rule of thumb. Very simple, very easy. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Or... Don't do to others what you don't want them to do to you. Can I put it that way? There's the positive. What do you want other people to do for you? Well, surely you want them to warn you of danger. Surely you want them to speak God's word into your life, to preach the gospel to you, that you might live out your days with your eyes focused on the Lord Jesus. And surely we must do that for others. We want others to treat us fairly, to be kind to us, to help us in our times of need, to care for us when we're hurting. They might use their wealth for our blessing. Isn't this what we want? That in everything, the biggest of things and the smallest of things, we want other people to do good to us. Well, then how can we treat them? any other way. And the them here isn't some random other person elsewhere, it's it's your parents and your spouse and your children, your siblings, your cousins, your work colleagues, your the people you study with, your fellow students at school, at uni, your neighbours, your acquaintances, the strangers you cross in the street. Every individual person we ever come in contact with You want to know how to live in relationship to them, well, you think, what would I like them to do for me? But of course, it's also in the negative, isn't it? Don't gossip. I mean, I don't, other people telling lies about me. Don't abuse others. Don't mistreat them and take advantage of them. What different lives we would live if we truly took that to heart. What a great witness we would be to our Heavenly Father who did the ultimate version of this, who sent His Son, the Lord Jesus, to die for us, that our sin might be paid for, that His Spirit might transform us so that we in turn might live to His glory as we live out that exact same thing, dedicated in all that we do to his glory by loving others. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word and we thank you how you show us these white ants, these dangers to our faith. Would you teach us to see the sin in our own lives, the beams and the planks? Would you remove hypocrisy from us? 
and also foolishness. Would you make us kind and loving and able to help each other grow? Father, we thank you for this promise that you have made, that those who come seeking will indeed find, that as we ask for the good things that you have promised, you will delight to give them. Father, change our hearts that what we desire is your kingdom, that what we want each day more than anything else is to live your way so that your character might be seen, that those around us would know you and love you. Father, make us brave and bold, courageous, to do unto others as we would have them do to us, to reach out with the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ and take salvation to all. And Father, we want this because we want your kingdom to come. Father, we want your will to be done. As it is in heaven, so on earth. And we ask this, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen.